I'm Bertie Ahern, Taoiseach of Ireland from 1997 to 2008. And this is an extended interview from the story of the Good Friday Agreement as I remember it. I became Taoiseach in June 1997. Our main coalition partners were the Progressive Democrats, led by Murray Kearney. One of the key figures in her party was Liz O'Donnell, who was appointed to the role of Minister of State at the Department of Foreign Affairs. She played a central role in the talks and told me how she came to be involved. Well, I was just appointed as a minister uh, in the summer of July 1997, and I hadn't previously been involved as a spokesperson on Northern Ireland. Um, when we came into government, you know, the peace process was in a moribund state because the Canary Wharf bomb had blown the whole thing, uh, stopped the negotiations. Uh, and, you know, there was kind of despair. But the new government coming in, two fresh governments coming in uh, with yourself uh, as Taoiseach and Tony Blair as Prime Minister, uh, there was a sense of optimism that for the first time, um, with a huge majority, Tony Blair had the opportunity uh, you know, to start afresh and to inject some, you know, uh, dynamic enthusiasm into the process. But of course, we'd no ceasefire. So uh, under the rules, there had to be a ceasefire before any meaningful discussions took place. So that summer, uh, I spent the summer um, just beefing up on all the documents, because the one thing that is frequently forgotten, I think, is that a lot of work had been done by previous governments on, you know, by the Reynolds government, Bruton government, uh, in kind of putting together the documents, you know, the, the framework document and the joint declaration in 1993 had really set the parameters of a possible settlement. Um, and uh, so I went off to Donegal on my holidays to do my ecker and read up all those documents because we had uh, there was a ceasefire on the 20th of July. I remember it because it was my birthday and uh, that meant that we were back in business potentially to start the negotiations in September. So before September came, I had familiarised myself with all of the documents. Um, uh, originally, I had been appointed as Minister of State at the Department of Foreign Affairs with responsibility for overseas development and human rights. So this was an added uh, remit that my party leader had given to me uh, in in her usual way she had, she she'd contacted me on the phone one day and said in the, in the context of other party matters she was talking to me and she says and by the way you're doing the north <laughs> i said as typical mary harney sort of you know throwaway remark almost that you're doing the north so i nearly died so that put the the frighteners on me and i did all my homework right through the summer in donegal reading all the documents and familiarising myself. So then when we kicked off in September, there was a decontamination period where uh, Sinn Féin had to, you know, stay on ceasefire uh, until the talks began. So I think there was an air of optimism that Mo Molum and Tony Blair were injecting. They were naturally reforming politicians as well. So um, and they had a good relationship with us uh, from the very beginning. And I think that's was central to the success of of um, the whole process from 1997 September to the Good Friday Agreement is that the two governments were really added. Um, we had the same, the same objective. Um, we were helping each other to overcome obstacles. Um, and that, that was crucial to the success because there were rocky periods where there were breaches of the ceasefire, you know, where we had to suspend our critical faculties about the bona fides, for example, of loyalists or Sinn Féin, uh, about, you know, arms and murders happening. 
Um, so that's solidarity between the two governments um, and the use of our best teams. You'll know this Taoiseach yourself, your own, in your own Taoiseach's office, uh, the best people were being deployed and in foreign affairs, our best people, our best diplomats were being deployed. Similarly, in uh, Tony Blair's office, the best of civil servants were, were being deployed to this. It was the singular most important policy objective of the two governments. So I think that that's what gave us the sort of confidence to move forward progressively. But it was very slow to start, as you remember. As soon as um, as soon as Sinn Féin came in, the DUP walked out. Um, so, you know, I was always conscious that the fact that such a big cohort of unionist thinking, political uni- uni- unionism was outside the, the talks, that it was a deficit and it put huge, pre- huge pressure on the Ulster Unionist Party, David Trimble in particular, because every time David wanted to do something progressive or make a concession or, uh, you know, seek meaningful progress in the talks, um, he was vilified outside um, by the DUP. So that was a very difficult position and both governments knew that. So we spent quite a bit of our time trying to support uh, the Ulster Unionist Party uh, in uh, and David in particular from you know, from assaults from within his own party and within his own constituency. There it was, was a, wasn't it a, a fact that time in that day when Sinn Féin came in and DUP and Rob McCartney walked out. Yeah. Um, uh, that David w- w- could have went under that stage, and yeah. while we were supporting him. It was at that stage that the two loyalist parties also propped him up. Yeah. Remember that day where they walked in together with him to prop him up? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but in, in fairness to him, I think in history terms, he he was brave to stay in at that time. because He was, he, 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 he was he, alone. He was. Yeah, and sometimes I felt he was alone even in his own party. Um, you know, there was di- there were divided councils within the Ulster Unionist Party. Some were only half-heartedly supporting it. Uh, John Taylor wasn't as supportive as David was, and you know Reg Empey was always supportive. So, you know, we were never sure that they were going to walk out any minute. So there was a lot of tiptoeing around uh, the Ulster Unionist Party um, um, delegation. Um, I, I think that uh, the Women's Coalition made a significant contribution uh, to that, and as you say, the Loyalist parties uh, were were desperate to actually to reach a political settlement and to, to end the violence. Uh, and, and that was very important. The, you know, lives were at stake for, on their side as well. Um, so if there was such a diverse group of people around that table. And, of course, the plenary sessions were the set pieces that were showed on the television. But, in fact, very little progress was made in the big set piece plenary sessions chaired by George Mitchell, all of the progress was made, I would say, uh, or 90% of it was in bilateral agreements. The Irish government meeting the STLP or the, you know, the Ulster Unionist Party meeting us, um, us meeting the British government, um, the women and, you know, uh, the, the smaller parties that were there. Um, Mo Mola made a huge, uh, I think, made a huge impression on me um, as as a a very feisty um, Labour uh, British politician. I think she was the first Secretary of State in Northern Ireland who had a genuine understanding of, you know, the the, the justice uh, and, and the injustice that, uh, that had gone on in Northern Ireland. So she was very important in confidence building with, with Republicans. 
and uh, she was there at the right time. Unfortunately, she was unwell, but she did make a difference in terms, a huge difference in terms of confidence building with Republicans. And she was very popular in Northern Ireland. I think she she sort of made it a people's pro, pro, um, pro, um, project, the peace process. You know, people liked her. They came up and spoke to her. Um, and she, uh, she she was very good with the small parties, keeping everybody on side and 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 talking to the Irish government um, in a very open way about yeah. the difficulties in the Northern Ireland office, for example. Remember that we went through that September, October, November, and you know the talks were settling down very well. And uh, as I recall, we 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 had the parameters, as you correctly said, from the past, from the framework document, and. You know, the principles of consent from the Downstreet Declaration, and um, we, we we weren't making much progress, but at least we had the the outline of what we were trying to do. And then it was that terrible Christmas where, where we we all thought we were breaking up for Christmas and we'd all get a break from the talks. But then everything went wrong. The Billy Wright was killed in prison on Stephen's day. Um, the, the UDA um, killed a few people. The IRA killed a few people. Uh, so by the time we came back in January, um, you know, things were not good at all. Yeah. You see, the peace process was two things. It was a conflict resolution on the one hand. It was trying to end the violence. And on the other hand, we were trying to put in place a new political dispensation with as between the British Irish governments and the parties in Northern Ireland and a whole new framework of remaking Northern Ireland in terms of justice and human rights uh, and anti-discrimination and all of those things that needed to be done but progress um, on on the security side on the killings as you say and the kind of the breaches of the ceasefire that made progress on the political side much more difficult in other words they were codependent so that's that's what really slowed everything down. And sometimes we had to suspend our critical faculties um, as to whether, you know, we were taking big risks as two democratic governments. Um, you know, to what extent should democratic governments be talking to terrorists um, when they still had a big arsenal? So the big challenge was dealing with that decommissioning process and the, the bona fides of both loyalists and... Sinn Féin about the decommissioning and the handing up of weapons. Sinn Féin saw it as an outcome of the negotiation rather than as a prid quo quo for continuing the negotiations. So that was always a monkey on our backs. Uh, That's why we had the breaches of the ceasefire. And um, I suppose we'll never know what went on in loyalism uh, or in republicanism. Um, but the main thing was we had to keep it on track. We had to keep the political players in the field and in the room. And that's why we were so grateful for, for David Irvine and his colleagues, uh, Billy Hutchinson, uh, and for Martin McGuinness and, and, and Jerry Adams for staying in the room. And, and we had it on good authority from you know, reliable, you know, um, informants that uh, and people who were talking to them outside the process that they were up for a deal and that they were in transition to politics. So we had to take we had to take that, um, you know, uh, with goodwill, even though at times we doubted it, you know, and we were challenged to doubt it. And we had to keep our own constituency happy. We had to keep people in the Republic or, you know, the citizens of the Republic, you know, reassured that we were we weren't being sold a pup here, you know. Exactly. 
And then we had that Lancaster house meeting where yeah. uh, we were meant to make a lot of progress, but because um, I think Sinn Féin were thrown out at that time, we, we, yeah. we, they weren't there. And then we had the Dublin meetings, UDP were out. Uh, so then we drifted into March, and I suppose the next big place was where we, we went to America for St. Patrick's Day, and um, I had the job of briefing Bill Clinton and giving an assessment of, of where we were. Um, and he, he had known from the British side that uh, George Mitchell was, was going to uh, look for a deadline. He didn't announce that deadline until we got back from America. But uh, I, 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 don't, I don't recall being over-optimistic. I think we were... No. Our view in mid-March was that we were up to press this as much as we could, but uh, it, I don't think any of us thought that the deadline of early April was going to be the deadline. We, we thought it was going to be far further. Yeah. So when we came back from that, Liz, we, I suppose it was only three weeks, so we really got into... That. Then the, the meetings intensified, as you recall. And, you know, what, what, what was your, your feeling as we got into those last few weeks? It's funny... Um because it was because the, the agreement was negotiated in three strands, you had the you know the first strand internal Northern Ireland, second st- strand was uh, north south. I was very involved in that uh, that part of the negotiations, and then east west. When it all came together, it was coming together, but it didn't really come together till the last few days. Um, and we saw the we saw the range and this the hugeness of it, the vastness of the reform that was anticipated. Um, uh, I think those of us who were close to the negotiations were less optimistic than people outside. We knew that there was an awful huge amount of pressure and anticipation in the outside world that we were going to reach an, a historic agreement, the closure of history, you know. Uh, but that put huge pressure on us um, because we knew there was so much left undone. I mean, the whole policing thing had to be parked. You know the release of prisoners, which was very difficult for for um, for everybody on both sides. Um, the whole remaking of the justice system was going to be have to be done. So we knew that it was only the beginning, actually, that we were coming to the end of the agreement or with the deadline. But that, you know, the euphoria that was outside that day, all around the world, of that we'd reached a historic agreement and settlement, we knew it was only the beginning. And so it was to be that afterwards it took so long. It took so long for the institutions to be established. They only operated fitfully for a few years. Uh, they didn't really operate uh, with any kind of gusto and stability until maybe 10 years after the agreement. So... Um, and then there were all sorts of elections in between. And then the decommissioning took too long. The decommissioning took too long, in my view, uh, because, you know, Republicans were holding on to weapons, I think, as a way of getting more concessions. And that wasn't fair because, you know, there had been a commitment made um, to George Mitchell. The, the Mitchell principles of decommissioning was that, you know, the mindset was decommissioned, that why would you need a, a, an arsenal you know, if you were on a peace process, genuinely. Um, but even though the decommissioning was there in the agreement, it was vague. Uh, it was, you know, going to be difficult to implement. Uh, we had an independent body to verify any decommissioning. But because it took so long for that whole process of disarming to happen publicly and verifiably, uh, 
the kind of the confidence of the unionist community was draining all the time and it was destroying the Ulster Unionist Party because it looked as if they'd sold out and that they were going to be forced into government with people who still had an arsenal, um, which was a legitimate position, a very difficult position for them to be in. Um, you know, so... Uh, you just go back a little bit there, uh, on, on the last few days... Um, to get the sense with as you've said, with so many issues to to sign up, you were you were very involved in. Well, we weren't involved in Strand One really. We, no. we we were we were kind of helping both SELP and yeah. and they finally got that deal late at night. The Strand Two, um, the Strand Two became the most <laughs> difficult as you, yeah. as, as as you know, um, where we had this big list where we wanted. Uh, you know, we were trying our hand on I think a bit that we wanted north <laughs> south list. <laughs> yeah on everything um, and but we were trying to suck them into an institution position but you remember those final negotiations mm. on, on that John Taylor saying yeah. saying not, not barge, pole. barge pole and yeah. then coming to the position where we got what, what your, your memory and in fact north south have worked very well and there hasn't been much around when it when they are working yeah. when they are but what, what what's your your your, your memories of those discussions? Well, I remember the whole kind of strand too, with the, the north-south bodies with executive powers was kind of the frightening words that the, as far as the union is concerned, they saw this as a Trojan horse in the belly of which was the United Ireland. You know, they saw that that, that was a try-on. We were trying to to um, replace the border with, this, with, this, um, with these bodies um, which would have powers. So their objective was to, first of all, deny that these should happen at all. And then as they softened up towards the end of the negotiations, they were only going to have minimalist uh, number of them. Um, and Wally Kerwin, who was in your office and uh, a great civil servant who had done a pile of work um, uh, very enthusiastically on north-south bodies, the list was as long as your arm. And when David Trimble saw it on the last day or two, he freaked out and said, no way, there's no way these bodies. So we had to hastily rip up the list, fill it the list down to a, a reasonable amount of um, a reasonable amount of bodies that would it wouldn't be controversial. They didn't want any controversial uh, north-south bodies that had any powers um, because, as I said, they saw that as a kind of a, a closening of relationships and a, a blurring of the border, um, and they were quite fond of the border. In <laughs> to, to David Trimble, and um, uh, Peter Robinson has admitted this to me too, that uh, the, the concept of, of the, the bodies, um, they don't like the executive powers, they said, but the idea of working together... Yeah, with, with, on tourism it, it, or whatever, yeah. yeah. It, they, they don't know problems with that, yeah. so I suppose mm. it, it was, as you say, the executive... You know, yeah. executive powers and who they'd be accountable to yeah. they would have to be accountable to the, to the northern to the executive. executive and then the republic so yeah. that yeah. sounded a bit too close yeah yeah we just move it on to the um to the vote Liz. i suppose in in we had to campaign hard in the south but at least we had an open door people wanted to mm. explain and um the constitutional well from where I was, and obviously in in Fianna Fáil party, the articles two and three were the the sacred cows that we had to, to explain. But o- overall, your memories of the campaign uh, and both north and south. Um, well, I think we were always confident that we, we were going to carry it. I think we were blessed 
from the beginning, from back to the Reynolds time, um, that, you know, people wanted peace and they wanted an honourable settlement that was fair to everybody. And that's the whole point of a peace process, that there has to be parity of pain and parity of gain. And it had to be fair and there had to be something for everyone in it for it to be sustainable as a peace process, as a settlement. Um, so I, I was always confident that even though the constitutional issues had been huge, you know, a huge obstacle in the past in people's minds, um, but the fact that we were going to change the constitution and um, introduce the, the concept of consent um, um, and also that we were going to widen it to the diaspora and that the concept of that a united Ireland could only be achieved by peaceful means. I mean, it was a reasonable change to our constitution. But at the same time, the quid pro quo for that was going to be north-south bodies and it was going to be a whole new dispensation and uh, a better relationship between the two governments and the pe- people of Northern Ireland and, and the South. I mean, it was it was a fair settlement. I, th- I always thought we were going to carry it well and there was great enthusiasm for it. I was less, I was less confident about the North um, because the decommissioning issue was woolly, as we know, um, you know, constructive ambiguity had been the order of the day. So, um, and then, do you remember there was at the release of the Balkan bombers? I think that was in the middle of the campaign. Yeah. But it was a disaster. It was a total disaster because what you had was a kind of the glorification of people who had been released. Um, and uh, it, it just soured relations in, in Northern Ireland. So that was a very dangerous point. But in the end, it was carried. Um, there, there were sufficient numbers of people in Northern Ireland willing to, to go with it and take the risk for peace and, and trusted the, the British government and, and trusted the Irish government and the parties in Northern Ireland who supported it. Uh, so um, I, think, I think that mandate gave the, the Good Friday Agreement a huge authority because that was the first, it was the first I suppose, opportunity of self-determination uh, of people on both sides of the island uh, for a very long time, probably since 1919 or something. So it was, it was, it was a very strong endorsement uh, directly by, by people north and south uh, that this was the way to go, uh, that we were going to bury the hatchet and move on progressively, you know, with this settlement. And so it was very rewarding from our point of view. Uh, of course, we did know it was still only the beginning, but that mandate gave huge authority to it. And I think so when I when I think nowadays about how lax and how, um, you know, negligent, really, the, the the recent British governments have been about the Good Friday Agreement, you know, it's like as if they never read it. Uh, I, I, what upset me was that this was an international agreement signed at the United Nations, lodged at the United Nations, signed by two prime ministers at the time, uh, a new British-Irish agreement, and uh, and mandated by the Irish people on the island of Ireland. So it, to me, that's a hugely powerful, uh, authoritative document, which shouldn't be treated lightly or, you know, set aside so easily. And that's why um, the Brexit uh, the Brexit vote and, and, and subsequent post-Brexit politics in, in Britain ha- has really been disappointing because it seems to minimise the importance of the Good Friday Agreement and it, it doesn't seem to understand what it's doing um, yeah. to that historic agreement. Well, let's hope that 
Rishi Sunak takes a better interest than his last two predecessors. Yeah. Um, just pick up on a, if, a few things that happened afterwards um, for the record. Is we, we, we were very happy in May. We were very pleased. We, we were getting ready for implementation. I remember I, I was working on the pattern commission because yeah. I was delighted because I knew Chris Patton as a minister mm. was getting delighted he was getting Morris Hayes we're going to do the policing yeah. and I was getting ready for some meetings at that and then OMA happened 15th of August um, can, can you recall just uh, I mean I remember where I was no, what I, I was doing too. that day but it, it really it really could have derailed our whole project oh it broke my heart I mean if if being involved in the peace process was the best part of my career Oma broke my heart, literally broke my heart. I, I couldn't believe after such, you know, we had, you know, the British British government had demilitarised Northern Ireland. A lot of the towns like Oma, who had been very heavily securitised for many years, everything was just relaxed. I actually passed through Oma the day before. Uh, I was coming down from Donegal, uh, where we had a holiday home. And I was coming down for Miriam O'Callaghan and Steve uh, had their first child. And I was coming down for the christening and I drove through Oma and I saw because at that stage you could just drive straight through Oma and there were children eating ice creams on the, you know, it was summer day, beautiful weather in the middle of the summer holidays and just a lovely, you know, peaceful town in Northern Ireland. And the following day I was at the christening uh, in Miriam's house, Miriam Steve's house, and it was full of journalists, of course, because they're journalists. All their friends are journalists. So at sort of 20 past three, all their phones started ringing at the same time. It was incredible. And it, that was the Oma bomb had just gone off. And they were all journalists who were working, you know, actively working on current affairs. So the party broke up. And that night I was on prime time talking to Miriam about the Oma bomb. But what broke my heart about it was that we thought... We didn't know who had done it. We thought it was a Republican bomb. We knew it was a Republican bomb. But we thought that all our work and all of the euphoria and all of the hope of the whole of Ireland and England that, you know, that this was over. Suddenly, you know, we were back dealing with picking up bodies. It was the biggest atrocity um, of of the Troubles. And it was six months after we had all signed up for it. So I was totally heartbroken. I was bawling crying for hours I couldn't I couldn't get my head around that we had because I felt that we had lured people into a feeling of security you know we governments uh, and suddenly these people had just been killed on an afternoon a sunny afternoon you know in the summer so it was heartbreaking and then it was just so long for anyone to be uh, you know, to, to own up or, you know, there was all sorts of refusal to give information and it was terrible, really. No, it, it, it certainly, um, that, that was a whole rest of that year was kind of, Spoiled. instead of being a great year. Yeah. And, and then it created the delays and the, the problems. In fairness to uh, President Clinton, he, I think he helped us greatly because not alone had he helped us in those last days in the talks, but I think his visit... Um, and Hillary's visit to to Oma and to Belfast yeah. and was it was a huge lift. And then I suppose uh, when we we started, we got the Patent Commission up and running. Uh, reflecting back now and talking to people, is it it's amazing that they see the policing as uh, on all sides as an enormous success because they 
the patent commission was one thing, but it was implemented in relative speed. It was. Uh, it was. And, and I think they, they, looking back now, they see that the, the respectability and the way that Sinn Féin and everybody else now is quite happy to, to deal with the policing. So there was an issue, issue that we kind of put on the side to get going. We had to uh, park it, it really. Did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If we had had the same success on decommissioning, life might have yeah. been very very different yeah, but yeah. that that one did, did 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 work and the in the next few years liz as we went into getting the institutions up i think a big problem is when the institutions are up and running a bit like today uh, everything is great when when they're not up and running there's always the risk is isn't that like we've been on this stop start for yeah a long time yeah there's a tendency to actually use this notion of of walking out or abstention as a way of dealing with political difficulties which is like that would never happen here like you wouldn't get a kind of a government oh I'm not going into the doll uh, I'm pulling out of government because of this I mean these were all problems that were bound to arise you know I mean and it's this it's kind of this instinct is to abstain and pull out and refuse to um, to honour the institutions. I mean, the, the institutions are part of the agreement. You can't just walk away from the institutions and the executive because things aren't going your way. It's like these problems with the protocol, for example, which has caused the latest abstention of the DUP from government, it, it's kind of unreasonable because why can't they just stay in and try and overcome the difficulties with their with the partners in government? I mean that's normal politics. So I think that that normal normality hasn't really crept into politics. It's still an abnormal form of politics. It's still like they use walkouts and um, absolutist um, kind of things to 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 just deal with problems which arise in every government. They don't seem to be able to. And I think perhaps it's because they became overly dependent on the governments to solve problems. Um, and it needed that. It, I mean, we were we are the custodians of the agreement, the two governments. Um, but sooner or later, the parties themselves are going to have to have the maturity to just, you know, get over these problems. You know, and they they're not that difficult. These problems. When you think of the problems we overcame in coming to an agreement, the Good Friday prisoners, prisoners. You know, yeah, really serious issues: reform of policing, reform of justice. You know, all of that, Mm. Um, and the legacy issues, of course, which which remain. Mm. Um, What's your view, Liz, on the? um, I suppose I I look back and I I know why we all work so hard to to get a position where everybody was in government and there was no opposition mm. but but looking back i often wonder was, was there was there was there some way um because the difficulty when everyone everyone is in government when there's a row in government then everything collapses yeah uh, you, you know you, you could imagine in doll Aaron if every time they had a row the doll would cease yeah um, it's but, just but, not I, normal I often wonder, was there a, an alternative but I, I there probably wasn't at the I, time it was tailor-made to deal with the fact that you you needed this inclusive um multi-party government to share responsibility for the implementation of the agreement and to share power um so i think it was tailor made for then but there's also a capacity for a review of that um in the agreement for a review of things that aren't working and maybe that's one thing that has to be because i think this notion of the veto is 
is is is probably a recipe for this sort of walkout and um, that everything has to be if if everything everything has to be going fabulously for it, it to work, but if there's any problem, one side pulls out or you know stops working and stops cooperating and implementing. So it's it's a kind of an immaturity, really. It's yeah. a pity, but I th- I do think Brexit. Um, I ca- you can't really blame the parties totally because Brexit has poisoned the well, and there was a well of goodwill there to make the agreement work and and to continue working together for a greater future. The dream, the great dream of of the late John Hume, um, who was the architect of this whole process, who dreamed of a shared government and taking you know swelling. Um, you know what? Is it, what was this great phrase? Um, spilling our sweat and not our blood. You know, to live together in peace and harmony, and, and about people working together. And that was he was the architect. Um, you know, so uh, I think people have to go back to that time. You know, people have to go back to we overcame those problems because we had the right mindset. And I think the the right mindset has diminished amongst the parties in Northern Ireland. They have to go back to the time when we were saving lives. And that was the imperative. We were we were working to save lives and to stop the war, stop the violence. Um, they, they don't seem to be so motivated to, to resolve. There seem, they seem to be easy about the fact that the institutions aren't working, which is desperate, really. I mean, it's, it seems to me the people of Northern Ireland have huge patience or else they've completely switched off. They don't seem to expect anything from their politicians anymore. Um, so, you know, uh, I don't know whether there's any way out of that, but I, I, I think the mindset isn't right, and the British British government mindset isn't right either. So, the two governments, I know, um, there's a the, the institutions we set up that there was going to be regular meetings of the government, the two governments, you know, the British Irish Council to 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 resolve issues that came up, and I don't think that's been used sufficiently. You know, we've kind of left it to Europe to try and sort out the Brexit thing. But I know that there's a meeting imminently now planned. And that's good because the two governments still have a responsibility to make this whole thing work. And I think if if the parties in Northern Ireland really felt that the two governments were kind of wearing the trousers and really seriously engaged again and uh, and not kind of pandering to one side, which has been happening, unfortunately, uh, that the Tory government has been pandering to the DUP because they needed their votes and all the rest of it. So they should be they should be nonpartisan and try and sort it out as we have tried to be um, in sorting out the protocol problem. Well, one other issue which was an issue then is still an issue now, but uh, it's, I think it's good to reflect on it. We went to a lot of trouble to make sure that the position of First Minister and Deputy First Minister were the same. Yeah. Um, you know, people, now there's a big debate, you know, who should be First <laughs> Minister, who should be. Yeah. But it, it just, you were in the negotiations and that, and my recollection is that we tried to make sure that the two mm. were, were, were equal standing. Were equal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I remember um, Martin McGuinness accepted that at the time. And, uh, you know, so but I think it's just, you see, for the DUP, what people forget is that they weren't around the table. They didn't do the deal, you know, so it took them a long time to buy into the bits that they liked, like being in power. You know, they they liked being in power. So that's when Paisley had his moment of 
complete uh, revisionism and now he's himself and Martin McGuinness were first and deputy first minister and that was that was very successful um but they never bought in the people who are like you know Jeffrey Robinson or Jeffrey Donaldson and you know they they walked out they walked out they didn't you know they they didn't sign up for the deal and he joined the DUP yeah um so I think they came late to the whole thing and they're kind of 10 years behind everybody else Mm. in accepting, you know, accepting that they're not top dog anymore and they're going to have to share government and share the spoils of power with um, with the nationalist community. Mm. And uh, they've just come late to that. And they're. I suppose it's like any change. If if you're negotiating, you're losing. They felt they feel they're losing power, but it's not. They're gaining a properly functioning democracy. So, um, if only could, they could come around to that view. And I I do believe Sinn Fein is 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 trying their best in Northern Ireland to actually reach out and 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 sort out these problems and are willing to you know to 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 compromise on mm-hmm. protocol issues. Unfortunately, in this series, I can't talk to David Trimble. I um, know. My last conversation with David was, was um, I'd asked him, would he be able to participate in it? And um, he said, well, he'd a holiday in September and hopefully he uh, he, he, he would. And uh, Daphne then said she, she would try to do it. What wasn't to happen. But one of the things that I had an opportunity of saying to him in Queens publicly uh, when the portrait was was launched on, on, on that day, oh, yeah. a few weeks before he died, was that I thought he, he, he made two brave moves. Uh, he made a brave move um, when in September 97, when, Fair, when Bob McCartney um, and the DUP walked out and Sinn Féin walked in, that he stayed in. He stayed in. Um, and I think he deserves a lot of credit. Then he deserves a lot of credit for that final day um, when two leaders later on, uh, Arlene Foster and Jeffrey Donaldson walked, walked out, out yeah. that he stayed in. Um, and I had the opportunity of, of being able to acknowledge that. But it, just, just about David's role in this, I mean, I, it was argued for a long time that John Hume definitely deserved a Nobel Peace Prize, that maybe David was a bit lucky. Um, I, I've, of course, there was no dispute about John, but I think, in, 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 even though I had more probably rows with David than I had with anyone, but mm. having said that, I do think his, his, his moves were very brave. Yeah, and because, you see, on, on our side, you know, there was a nationalist consensus and, and, and there was total support in, in the Dáil. We never had a vote on the peace process in the Dáil. We had the support of the parties. So we weren't under the pressure. We were under pressure to get peace. That's, that's what people wanted us to do, to sort this out once and for all, get peace, stop the war, um, and do an honourable settlement of our differences. Um, but he was negotiating down and he was on his own. And he was being vilified politically and personally outside by the DUP. Um, and so, and even by people within his own party, I mean, his own constituency, he was, you know, he was, he was having difficulties there. So he was in a much more difficult position than anybody else. Because if we didn't have him, we had no deal. No. So he was really important. So I think to share the Peace Prize, um, you know, it took two to tango. We we needed we needed a senior nationalist opinion and senior unionist opinion to actually to you know to sow the deal, and it was complex 
it was very complex and we needed the leadership that he showed. I mean, if we didn't have him, we wouldn't have had, we couldn't have carried the, the referendum. So, we, you know, we wouldn't have had the mandate. So he was hugely important. But he was difficult to like in the sense of he was, he was a difficult person to deal with. He was because he was under pressure, he always had a red face and he was always like under huge pressure. And, you know, he wasn't friendly. He was he was briary and bristly. And um, but in the end, he, he did the business. And, you know, he was coming from a very difficult, difficult position historically. Mm. As I wanted to ask you the, the, the question, the, the, one of the things when I probably started dealing with the North in the end of the 80s in a real way and uh, even though, you know, I wasn't continually on it in, in, yeah. and then the 90s, it, it, it struck me that, that uh, being a woman wasn't an easy thing in Northern politics or being a woman trying to deal mm. with them. They, they had a, a view which we couldn't quite understand. Mm. Um, how, how did you, did you feel, you know, in the thick of negotiations? I, I do remember... Uh, You've been on the opposite side of the table with me and David, dealing with John Taylor and um, the snarls and the groans and the grunts, but uh, it, it couldn't have been personally easy sometimes. Yeah, except I think I didn't get the worst of it. I think the women, uh, the women coalition, the, the the Monica and and her colleagues in the, in the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition, got the brunt of that misogyny uh, and disrespect. Now, in fairness, George Mitchell, our chairman called it out and wouldn't have it. Uh, so I think it was just outside the negotiations. In previous negotiations, they had a hard time. And subsequently, in when when the, the assembly started and uh, they, they, they experienced desperate verbal abuse um, and just old-fashioned misogyny, you know, just not recognising or respecting their, you know, their right to be there. I don't think they treated them as proper politicians. For me, I think I got off lightly because I was representing a sovereign government and they had a they had a kind of a, I suppose, a reserved respect for me. They weren't going to be openly rude to me. God knows what they said behind my back, but um, I, I didn't find I got any personal abuse uh, from uh, in the negotiations themselves because I was representing a government. Yeah. And George Mitchell... Um you got on well with George. We all got yeah. on well with George, but um, just George's role as a, as he always said, he wasn't a negotiator; he was the moderator. Um, but just give us your, your reflections. I mean, you dealt with him right through yeah. from start to finish. Liz. It was a masterclass in chairmanship. I've never seen anybody chair uh, any set of negotiations like that. You know, uh, or or set or a meeting or a board or anything. You know. He was masterful because he never interrupted people. He, he let people talk. He reckoned that the problem was talking is better than killing and let them talk, even if it's boring. I remember he let Rob McCartney speak on a point of order for about an hour. And like we were nearly, you know, we were nearly dying in our seats with boredom and anger and listening to vitriol. But... George didn't interrupt. He let people speak. He was totally inclusive. Um, you know, he he wouldn't he wouldn't countenance people being abusive to each other. You know, he always called it out. But he he had masterful patience and and really strong integrity. I suppose he he gained our trust and he gained the trust of everybody. But he was as tough on the governments as he was on the parties. He you know he didn't take any nonsense 
and you know he said we're here to negotiate you have to there has to be compromise and there has to be concessions and you know you have to you can't have fixed positions because fixed positions just leads to stalemate so we all had to you know we all had to kind of uh, twist a little bit um from our from our positions uh, even if there were negotiating positions in writing but we all had to be open to listen to the other side and he provided that space where accommodation could be found. It was amazing uh, how he did it. And uh, he did it without ever losing his temper. Um, in the end, he just had to go home because he said time wasn't the problem here. We we've, were talked out. We have talked enough. And in fact, in a lot of negotiations, if you, if you, if you keep talking, you start unravelling what you've achieved. So he knew, that he knew exactly when the time was right. To, to say I'm going I'm out of here I'm going back to my wife and my new baby and uh, and it's you, you, you've got to do it you've got to do the business and I think he just worked on everybody and then Bill Clinton at the last minute as well but I don't think I don't think anybody else could have done it as well as George did it and he I mean he deserves rightly the gratitude of everybody on the island and in the UK um, for his work um, the only other one I, I, mean, I suppose we dealt with them all. And we spent hundreds of hours. I spent, you know, I think hundreds of hours with with Jerry Adams and and Martin McGuinness, and I think their roles have been well, yeah. you know, well well covered. Uh, I I always think the uh, the other we we didn't know the loyalists as well. We didn't know the Ulster Democratic Party or the mm-hmm. Progressive Unionist Party as as well. Uh, because we had much experience of the loyalists, yeah. UDA, UVF, Red Hand Commandos, but um, I always felt Davy Irvine was was different to the others because he seemed to try to find compromise and try to talk to other people. And yeah. maybe give your reflections of Davy. Oh yeah, I think he was a, he was a fantastic contributor to to the talks. Um, he had educated himself while in prison, as I understand, and he. He, he had he had a, a real passion about finding a way forward and there was no love lost now between himself and the Unionist Party and uh, and the DUP. I remember poisonous exchanges between himself, David Irvine, after when we were all out giving interviews after we'd signed the Good Friday Agreement and it was all over. Um, and Paisley was on up in arms and causing problems so much so that we had to come home that night mm. for security reasons. He was he was kind of riling up uh, trouble in the north, um, and he was roaring at David Irvine for selling out and all this, you know. And of course, David Irvine gave it back just as good, saying, you know, that the DUP had used them as fodder, you know, and um, you know over the years. And, you know, what did what did they ever do, you know, for the peace process? Nothing. You know, he was he was very in favour of reaching a settlement, a political settlement. And he was very he was very, um, very progressive and intelligent man. I think it was a great shame that the loyalist parties didn't survive the electoral process. I remember the last in the last night of the agreement, there was a proposal that we keep you know, the sort of um, the process whereby the small parties would be included uh, for future elections as well. And the big parties didn't want it, which was such a disappointment. I mean, the women, women's coalition supported it, um, um, but the big parties just did, didn't have the generosity that night to say, yeah, let's keep in the small parties, like because we didn't have them then to implement 
And that's why there's this alienation now. There's no political representation of loyalism. And that's why you get the occasional riots and you and the the sort of disturbances at local level and possible paramilitarism still in existence there. Um, because they didn't they didn't have a window of walking through and continuing their political development, which was a shame. Yeah. Perhaps if there is a review, it's one of the items should be on the agenda. I agree, mm. I agree, because ironically what has happened in the 25 years is that the loyalism has become more disaffected and republicanism has become more self-confident and, you know, they're happy in the progress that the peace process has brought to them politically, uh, economically, socially, culturally um, but the loyalists have been left out and the unionists, the unionist political unionism isn't very good at engaging with them or expressing their grievances. Uh, I, I, I do feel that, that there should be some move towards helping uh, loyalism address the issues they have, educational and, and employment issues. Yeah. Last question, is it 25 years on, <laughs> to all the time and the effort, what, your, your hope for... The future? Oh, well, I, I watch it very closely because we all have a stake in it. You know, we put so much into it at the time. Um, I do hope that, it, it, you know, I suppose we we thought it would be implemented more quickly. But when you think of the scale of changes that were that that the agreement envisaged, uh, the total remaking of Northern Ireland and the total remaking of the relationship between the UK and Ireland, um, you know, it's probably going to take another another while, but I do think the relationship between the two governments is key to to any success, and I hope it's going to improve from now on. Liz O'Donnell, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>